The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of New York Presbyterian Hospital or Columbia University Irving Medical Center. You're listening to Taking It to Heart with the Columbia Valve Team, a podcast where we discuss the advancements in treatments for patients with structural heart and valve disease. I'm your host, Dr. Isaac George. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of Taking It to Heart with the Columbia Valve Team. I'm here joined with our uh, illustrious Valve Team. We have uh, from top to bottom, uh, Sashil Kadali, we have Rebecca Hahn, and Tamim Nazif. We have a number of other people that are working hard in the lab, and so um, we, will, uh, we will get them on the next episode. We're going to have a great session today. We have... Um, uh, a Christmas gift of new valve guidelines that we're going to talk about. We're going to try to keep this to 15 minutes because we've already been talking offline and it's been 15 minutes and we still haven't even gotten to most of it. So we're going to start with aortic stenosis and then um, see if we can, if we can t- hit the highlights. There's a lot to digest here. Um, our, our writers really went to town. So um, to start, I'm just going to give a couple of opening um, comments about what what has changed, um, and other people can can um, also jump in and add other comments and other um, things that have changed because I'm sure within the the thousand page guidelines, I'm going to miss some of this. So, in terms of testing, um, coronary CTA calcium scores was included as well as BMP uh, as a potential marker for patients that uh, have LV stress that's not quantified by ejection fraction. The BMP level is three times normal. Timing intervention, um, they have a number of uh, class one indications for low flow, low gradient. So patients with a reduced DF is now, um, uh, when they're symptomatic, is now a class one indication. It was not listed before uh, patients that have uh, low flow, low gradient with a normal EF. Again, the the D3 patients, uh, it's a class one indication to move forward with aortic valve replacement when the aortic stenosis is the most likely cause of symptoms. Um, There is a change, a downgrade of patients who have moderate AS who are undergoing cardiac surgery that used to be 2A, that's now become 2B. Um, In terms of therapy, which is a whole reset uh, of the indications and the, the therapy outline here. We have, again, we have AVR for patients that are less than 50, but specified as a mechanical AVR if they can tolerate um, warfarin. And for patients that are uh, between the age of 50 to 65, uh, those patients are recommended to get either a mechanical or a bioprosthetic valve. Patients that are uh, greater than 65, uh, Now, tissue valves are a 2A recommendation, not a 1 recommendation. Um, In terms of patients that are um, uh, less than 65, uh, uh, AVR is obviously class 1 and class 1 for 65 to 80, but so is TAVR. And TAVR is now uh, a 2A, uh, sorry, a class 1 indication for patients that are greater than 80 whereas surgery has been downgraded to 2A from class one in the past. 
SAVR for patients who are asymptomatic with very severe AS and abnormal stress or rapid progression or elevated BMP is now a 2A indication from 2B. Um, TAVR for patients that have greater than 12 months to live or less, or greater than 12 months to live, sorry, uh, and high-risk patients are class one. And they've listed that if their life expectancy is less than 12 months, um, they should be getting palliative care. And BAV is indicated for patients who are critically ill as a class 2B indication. Um, what have I missed, everyone? Well, Anything? I just, I mean, I think I, go ahead, Becky. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I don't, I don't, I don't know that you missed a lot, but, but that, you know, these particular guidelines um, are a little bit more prescriptive and explicit. And so um, the D, all of the D stages were a class one. It's just that now they actually list them. <laughs> um, and in, in listing them as class one, they also give the level of evidence slightly different for each of the different uh, D uh, categories. And so that's, I think, I think that was a difference for me. Um, all the Ds were a one, but um, they now actually break it down uh, into D2 and, D and D3. Um, you know, I think, I, I think uh, you know, so there are some similarities, um, but, but I do like that they've added uh, BNP. I wish, you know, that they'd um, maybe actually changed the ejection fraction from, they kept it at 50 for the, for the class one indication. Um, and then in the text, they explain that there are a lot of studies out there now suggesting that 60% um, should be the new normal for aortic stenosis. Um, and I guess I'm a little disappointed it didn't actually make it into the guideline uh, more explicitly into the algorithms. So, Shil? I mean, you're, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think it, 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 when you read through it, it it's a lot. And, you know, part of the challenge with any guidelines are that, you, you know, how much can you really read through the whole thing? How much do you absorb? And I think that that's part of the challenge. And I think it's important here to maybe sort of highlight different categories of changes, right? And and part of from my perspective, and, and part of the challenge with guidelines, as you've seen, is we're getting updated every three years. And even that doesn't seem enough, right? It was 2014, then it was 2017 update. Now we have a 2020 update. Um, and the reality is the guidelines have really sort of are trying to catch up with how people are practicing currently. Because the reality is, you know, before these guidelines came out, we were not practicing with the 2017 guidelines. We were practicing the way these guidelines laid out. And I think maybe to just sort of talk, uh, we should just sort of, you know, focus on a few areas. And obviously some of the key things you highlighted were, you know, choice of uh, TAVR. And uh, Becky pointed out when we were offline that uh, she, they changed it from TAVR to TAVI. So, you know, TAVI or TAVR versus SAVR, the issue of asymptomatics, the issue of this sort of population of low flow, low gradient or paradoxical low flow is much more integrated because that's what the reality is, you know, close to 30, 40% of patients are not the conventional uh, AS patients that we always talked about in medical school. And even just those three categories had some significant changes in terms of how we practice. Um, and, and maybe, you know, get your, to me, Be Becky's input on sort of the TAVI versus SAVR uh, sort of dynamic and, and the change there and, and what it, what does it really mean? Um, and, well, well, be before we get there, I'd like to just ask one thing. What are guidelines supposed to be? You're, you're saying that they're supposed to reflect cl clinical practice. I, I would disagree. And I would say that 
guidelines have to reflect the existing data level that we have. And they, they use and they quantify the existing data that we have. So we have a level of evidence that's listed with, with each class. So independent of what's been but, practiced, but Isaac, it's telling us what point. we should practice. Yeah, because what we can practice you. is we can get from TBT registries. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you, but the reality is how can they keep up? Um, and you know, are, are, we, are we supposed to wait every three years to modify our practice? when you have randomized clinical trial data. I mean, yeah, it's a snapshot in time. It's not how we practice medicine. Uh, you know, next year or two years from now, you know, early TAVR study comes out. It's not gonna be in the guidelines, but are, are we not supposed to change the great randomized clinical trial data that we see that we talk about at conferences? There, there are the guidelines are a snapshot in time and you can argue that they may not serve that purpose because data is evolving so rapidly. I mean, I mean what do they're you think? recommendations. They're, yeah. they're recommendations, right? Yeah. right? So we don't have to follow them because we can supersede ourselves with clinical- I mean, um, To me, that's part of what you were saying, right? Yeah. Because it seems ridiculous uh, to be treating, you know, the asymptomatics and just treating them with SAVR. That's what you were- Right, I mean- were alluding so to. An important point, which I think you know, folks have increasingly noted over the last number of years, the field has evolved so quickly that there's a feeling the guidelines are out of date before they're published. So, you know, I, I, I do think that it's important in writing the guidelines to, as Isaac said, you know, rely heavily on the highest quality evidence available, but then also, you know, to recognize that there's ongoing research is likely to be ongoing evolution and there are clinical practice patterns that can't be ignored. And a great example in this guideline of that is the insertion of the age into the SAVR versus TAVR discussion, right? There's a pretty, you know, um, well delineated and Isaac, you went through them, but you know, less than 65 or life expectancy greater than 20 years versus the intermediate range of 65 to 80, where it's TAVR or SAVR. And then those patients greater than 80, where TAVR is really preferred. That's, that's not the age alone. You know, surgical risk has been very well studied in the, in the TAVR randomized trial, the highest level of evidence we have. The age cutoffs much less so. So I think, you know, they're integrating both the strong clinical trial data, but also the practice patterns when they bring in the age. One final thing I would say is, and, and one thing that I was really happy to see is they did a really nice job, I think, um, of emphasizing this idea of shared decision-making, you know, in that 65 to 80 age where it says TAVR versus SAVR, it emphasizes that this should, should be a shared decision-making process with the patient. And class one indications are given um, to the fact that all patients with severe valvular heart disease should be seen by a multidisciplinary heart team and that all should have individualized risk assessment and shared decision-making. So that's really codified nicely in, in this guideline um, and gives you the wiggle room to integrate clinical practice. Hey, Isaac, so, I'd like to ask you a question though, yeah. real quick. Um, you know, one of the biggest conversations that you always have in clinic, you know, that 65 to 80, right? I think that's where we struggle a lot. We talk about lifetime management and then conversations about, you know, how right. hard is it to, you know, re, you know, what are the consequences? You know, part of the utility and would be useful for these guidelines is to sort of talk about what conversations need to be had in 65 to 80. And maybe for the audience, like, what is that, what is that conversation you're having in 65 to 80? Because that's not necessarily in the guidelines, but you always talk about that. Yeah, you know, I mean, we talk about how we're going to manage one of the valves, you know, if they degenerate, whether it's a surgical valve or a transcatheter valve. And so 
I agree. You know, the guidelines have missed some of the point here. And, you know, how we interpret and how we use these guidelines is, is not entirely clear to me, because as you say, we've taken some of this that reflects clinical practice, like Sashil is saying, but then we also have the basis for guidelines, which is clinical trial data. So it's very confusing to read, and it's very confusing for me to understand these guidelines. And in a lot of ways, the old guidelines were much easier for me to process and digest. You know, is this the right decision for a patient with a small annulus who's 65, who, who's overweight to get to get TAVR? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, you know? Um, and some of that decision depends on their risk and how long they're going to live. Or maybe they could have done life expectancy as, as a, a, an expected life expectancy. Um, and then that encompasses a lot of different factors. Um, and that uh, is mentioned. Or, or they, they actually mention, yeah, they mention life expectancy. Yes, it's both age and life expectancy. Yeah, they have greater than 20 right. years or greater than 10 years. And they, but, but you they, automatically they, look at the num age numbers, right? Because they, they separate it out into age numbers instead of life expectancy. Well, but they make, they make it clear that that has to be a shared decision-making discussion because you know your patient best as far as their life expectancy, given their comorbidities. What they've done is they've tried to at least introduce the idea that there is an age-related life expectancy, which is obviously true, right? Um, and so, uh, but that the decision-making is still uh, up to the team, which, yeah. which I liked. Right. And they've basically come down on the fact that if the life expectancy is greater than 20 years, SAVR is preferred. If it's less than 10, then it's TAVR. And between 10 and 20 is that, that borderline range. But again, show me the study that shows that life expectancy of 10 to 20 years should be an appropriate cutoff, you know? Um, so, so there are elements in this guideline, as Sashil, I think, correctly pointed out, that rely more on clinical practice than clinical trial data. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree 100%. Um, and, and to what level do you start introducing this and putting this on paper if you don't have, you know, trial data, like the asymptomatics, right? You know, you mentioned asymptomatic with high velocities and, and high factors such as progression or um, BMP, you know, we treat those people and we mention data, but, you know, it, it's not reflected here. Um, especially when we treat them with TAVR. Um, so, right. Yeah, we'll, Becky, we'll see Becky that. Bring out that point. You know, I found it interesting that in one part of the guideline that the choice between TAVR and SAVR is sort of well dealt with, but when it comes to asymptomatic patients, only SAVR is mentioned at all. And I understand that's where the evidence base is. On the other hand, you know, if you have an asymptomatic patient who's more in the TAVI age range or has medical comorbidities, um, should you then? just ignore the AS if they're asymptomatic? Should you put them towards SAVR, even if TAVR would otherwise be better for them if they did have symptoms? It seems, you know, again, a gap that's just sort of waiting for that next trial to hit that you can tell already in a couple of years, again, will probably be obsolete. You know, we're, we're making mean, those think... assumptions for high risk, for, for low, uh, for, for high risk patients, but you know, that data may not be there for low risk patients. And that, I think that's one of the things that we need that trial data for. I mean, we have it for surgery. You know, we have some Asian data that's been randomized that's shown that for asymptomatic, but let's say you have event rates that are very, very low for TAVR um, and you're doing them for asymptomatic patients and you have a, a stroke rate that stays fixed at one or 1 1.2 or, you know, in studies, they're obviously always higher and the pacemaker rates are eight or 10%, you know, over time is that, 
is that enough? Are those enough? Is that a decrease? Um, is that going to affect your, your primary outcome enough that it's not going to be uh, a therapy that you want to do for someone who's asymptomatic? Um, you know, no, I, you would, yeah, no, I think you're, you're right. I mean, I think what we're all saying is we, we all, we all come with our own bias, right? We all have our own biases, how we approach it, how we engage conversations with patients. And we're looking at the guidelines as, does it support our, our bias, right? I mean, Isaac, I, I raised that issue because we always have that conversation about lifetime management, uh, you know, because, you know, if you do a tower in a 65-year-old, we always have the conversation, you're likely going to need surgery. And the data we don't have is how complex. There's some little, little data, that, you know, some data that you and Gilbert and others have sort of done looking at, you know, redo surgery after tabbing and the potential risk, but not in a lower risk population. Those are all in sort of probably right. older patients, endocarditis, right. things like that. And so there's just one sentence here that part of the conversation needs to be the potential need for, and risk associated with valve interventions. For me, I think that's the biggest consideration. And so I have my bias. I'm saying when I'm talking to a 65 year old and they have a small annulus, I'm like, we're not going to be able to do a valve and valve. We can do a TAVR. You'll be fine right now. But I don't know what the risks of redo surgery are. And I think I emphasize my conversation with the patient to focus on that. And, you know, and I, and, and it, the guidelines can't emphasize all of that, but I think those are the type of things that we all think about. And that's why I'm saying clinical practice is, is, is not dictated by the guidelines, but should be informed by them, as you said. Uh, and maybe, I don't know what the right terminology is, but I think that's sort of the challenge that, that I have when these guidelines come out every three years. And that's precisely shared decision-making, right? So she'll take yeah. into account the patient's sort of personal wants and desires and being honest about what we know and what, in fact, we don't know. And I think exactly what you said is right. We don't know nearly enough about really, to me, three things. One is valve durability, um, certainly TAVR durability. And I think more and more, I'm less confident on what's out there about surgical bioprosthetic durability. Uh, and I think we're going to continue to learn about that. The second thing is what TAV and TAV and TAV and SAV and the different permutations will look like, um, you know, is still just being learned. And then finally, what are these reops after TAV are going to look like? Um, and does it matter which TAVI valve you put in? How many are going to require redo roots and these sorts of things? And I, those three questions um, really make any kind of long-term lifetime prognostication like we're trying to do very, very difficult. I, th I think the guidelines actually were, it, it was worded pretty nicely. I, I, I may be misquoting it a little bit, but that it was some, they said something like the key factor in decision-making was the a ratio between life expectancy and valve durability, which I, I, I found kind of impactful. And yeah. their, their issue was that, you know, how do you gauge life expectancy? And so the guidelines, unfortunately, had to use age as a surrogate for life expectancy. But I think that we all you know, make different clinical decisions about what we expect the life expectancy to be in our patients based on, you know, more information that we know about them than the guidelines could ever, uh, could ever express, you know, so um, it's, it's, it's always going to be a shared decision making process. You know, one of the, the, the things that's interesting to me is how we view the guidelines differently for AS than we do for MR. You know, when we have a patient who is asymptomatic, or maybe even symptomatic, we really seem to follow the guidelines to the T for MR, whereas AS, I feel like is a wild west. And, you know, oftentimes in clinic, we'll say, you know, well, you know, this is a two-way indication for, for MR. We, we're not sure we're in a gray zone, we're this and that, you know, and um, that can be with or without symptoms, but we're very strict about it. Whereas 
with AS, we start talking about a, a lot of things that are off label. And, and again, maybe it's because we have such rapidly emerging data, but it just begs to the question again, how do we use these guidelines? What are we going to use them for? If we're going to not follow this tree, because when we go down, we see an algorithm therapy that we don't want to do, we're just going to you know, go the other way, then what do we do with these guidelines? Well, you know, perhaps it's different for, um, you know, and they, 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 there is a difference between, uh, you know, comprehensive valve center versus a, a primary valve center, right? They made, they made, I think, some differentiation of that um, early on in the, in the document, the comprehensive level uh, one valve center versus a primary level two valve center. And I think perhaps the decision-making for each of those different uh, levels of expertise, knowledge, and um, you know, understanding of the literature and or participation in trials uh, will indeed also affect our decision-making process, but that the guidelines for at least a primary valve, uh, you know, level two valve center um, might be absolutely essential to make sure that we don't undertreat the patients who we all know are being undertreated right now. So I'm going to ask all three of you, what's the next big aortic stenosis trial, aside from early TAVR and unload, what's the next big trial that we're going to do? You can just tell me in five years, what's the next big green box that's going to be a randomized trial that comes out that's going to complete this? Can I tell you what I'd love it to be or what I think it'll actually be? Uh, I would love to see a bicuspid trial. I don't think it's going to happen, but I think that would go a huge way towards filling a big black box. You know, I think there's 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 a lot of groups of patients that we don't understand. We try to treat, and I think Tamim said, as he said, bicuspid. I think is one of the largest. This sort of uh, uh, tower unload. It's become a challenging trial to enroll uh, for lots of different reasons. I think it's an important question, but I think the reality is that that population is not homogeneous, and you know, some of those patients, uh, for various reasons, are going to benefit, and others won't. And I think. You know, I, I am a little concerned that those trials, even if they do get done or going to unload, is going to be a wash. But the reality is, there are probably patients that do benefit, and it's not—it's not, it, it's not a, just one. It's either moderate or severe. It's along a spectrum, and there's other conditions. And so, I think unload will hopefully get done. But I'm, I'm a little worried if it will really answer the question. I think the asymptomatic trials are going to—you know—early TAVR is going to going to be an important one for us to. Get under but our I belt. said we can't we can't choose that one though. He said we can't choose that one. That's oh, why sorry. Other. Oh, how come <laughs> how come it had to be other? Oh, <laughs> I don't know. Well, new. <laughs> that that way we can invest in it, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, this is this is again wonderful. It, it, very enlightening. I would recommend everyone uh, take a week and and read through the guidelines. Um, and uh, you know, it's it's a lot of information, but it's, it's really useful when you see a lot of patients. Um, any other closing comments, anyone? I think the one thing I will say is looking through the guidelines is good because it, it actually helps frame your conversation and it puts your own, you can, you know, you, we all, as I said, have our own bias, but it helps you rethink them and makes you evaluate them and how you have the conversation. So I think that's why it's important that we all look at the guidelines and how they've sort of changed as well. All right. We're going to wrap up here. Um, 
we uh, thank everyone for listening. We'll, we'll see you on the next episode or we'll hear you and listen to, you can listen to us on our next episode. We'll, we'll do more guidelines coming up. Thanks very much.